if you've been here, you already know, but prayer is not a transition time for us, so that means I get to move tables and shift around after, and y'all get to watch it. You don't miraculously just see everything changed when you open your eyes back up. All right, go to, grab your Bible, go to the first book of the Bible, chapter 6 of Genesis. Uh, you need probably going to need a Bible today. Uh, I say probably, and I, what I mean by that is you need a Bible today. So um, they're on the table back there if you want one. They're, they're free. Take it. Keep it. It's yours. Get any one of them you want. I don't care if it's a paperback. I don't care if it's a hardback. I have more. I have lots more. Go give them away to somebody if you don't, if you get, walk away with it and didn't mean to. Take it anyway. Give it to somebody else. Also, there's note sheets and pens back there. You don't have to take those unless you want them, but I would encourage you to take notes. Uh, not for you, but for whoever it is that you share God's word with. So whenever you walk out, I mean, you can take them for you too, but you know what I'm saying. They're for you uh, to share God's word. So your Bible is a big deal. If you don't realize that, it is not a storybook, even though we're looking at it as a story. It is a library. So it's a collection of books. So if you just start in the beginning and read through, you're going to get kind of confused at some point because it's organized like a library. Uh, But what we're doing is we are chronologically walking through the story of God in his word. So we're going to go front to back. We're not going to hit every page. Don't freak out. And it's going to take a while. And that's okay. We're not in any hurry to get anywhere. But in the beginning here, as we work through the first few books, it's going to go uh, pretty chronologically as we move. So, But what we're looking for is God in his word. That's what we're trying to hunt down here. So we talked already about the God who was before creation and what that means. You know, the Trinity, the picture of who God is before creation. Then we talked about how God created all things and then created man and woman as well in his image. And we talked about how those two uh, chose to rule instead of God and by making a decision to choose a fruit. We've talked about all this already. And as a result, sin entered the world. But at the same time, God promises in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises a seed of woman that will bring salvation. That's a big deal because that's what we're going to follow through the rest of the whole story is that seed, that promised deliverer. And we see that seed begin to move immediately uh, into her children, but they kill each other, or one kills the other. Cain kills Abel. We've already talked about that. Seems like the seed is lost, but no, she has more children. In fact, she has another one named Seth. And the image of God in Seth, the the seed in Seth, begins to move on down through this lineage, which we're not reading all of that. And at the same time, depravity continues and continues and continues and continues. So this week, that brings us to the question, does God deliver or destroy Does God deliver or destroy? And remember now, it's the story of God. We're going to hit Noah here, but it's the story of God, not Noah, not the ark. All right, so when we're talking about it, keep that in your mind. Not even the animals, not the flood. We're looking at God. And so today, I'm going to be honest with you, you may have questions about his character. I'm not saying that you should question his character. I'm saying you might have questions about his character if even the title makes you squirm a little bit. You know, does God deliver or destroy if that makes you squirm a little? Um, how certain are you that he does either one? 
It's another question to think about. And the truth, the answer, I'll tell you right up front is, he does both. He does both. And you're going to see that clear, clear today. So Genesis chapter 6 is where we're at. Verse 17 is what I'm going to read for the moment. And keep in mind, um, you know, some things will be up here, some things won't. So if, if it's not on the board, look down at your Bible. Hopefully you've got one. So Genesis 6 verse 17. For behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life uh, is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant. With you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Let me pray. Lord, your word is your word. I know that sounds like a duh, but for me, I need to make it known. Lord, it's your word, not mine. Not anybody else here. It's your word. And we're coming to hear what your word says, not what I say. And I'm coming to hear what your word says, not to talk. And Lord, I know I have a privilege of standing up here and holding this microphone in my hand and, and a responsibility to open your word, Lord, but I but I surrender that to you. I'm a student here just as much as anybody. I want to hear. I know I've studied, and but I want to hear from you, and I, I want to learn from you too today. And so I pray, God, your word speaks, not my mouth. In Christ's name, amen. So there's a movie about Noah. I don't know if y'all have seen it. Uh, it's trash, just saying, biblically speaking. It's it's ungood. Um, but, but they do one thing pretty well. They display the society of, uh, you want to say Moses, of Noah's day really nasty. Like, I mean, they're horrible to each other. They're horrible to animals. They're horrible to the land. And biblically speaking, that's fairly accurate uh, of Noah's day and the world at the time. It was viciously evil. Kind of like The Walking Dead, in a sense. Like, to live during that time, if you know the show. Um, if you're one of the living in The Walking Dead, the world's a terrifying, horribly scary place. Uh, filled with danger, isolation, and this realization that nothing's going to change it. Uh, and The Walking Dead actually is probably a good illustration because uh, people watch that season. After, and I'm not throwing any stones, by the way, if you're one that enjoyed it, so don't take it personally. I'm just saying That season after season of that show, people look past the horrific violence. I heard it all the time because, oh, it's just a zombie. It's a dead thing that, you know, unless you were a victim of a zombie, the people that were dying were, were the zombies. So we're, they're only killing, brutally killing things that are already dead, people would say, until you got to season seven when suddenly, uh, people turned on people and started brutally killing them just as bad as they were killing the zombies. And they lost some fan base as a result of that, but it didn't stop them from getting to season 11 and counting and um, whatever other spinoff series that they've had since then. So this is what depravity means. This is what depravity means. It's moving from killing the walking dead to killing the walking living. You know what I mean? It's, it's moving from killing to survive to killing for power or, or whatnot. Um, and not just killing, but brutally, beating them with bats, things, if you've seen the show, you know I'm not going to describe them. But before we exempt ourselves from all that, before we turn it off and say that's not us, let's just remember that we live in a society that's entertained by watching it. This is a small step from being entertained by watching it to entertaining the idea of doing it to doing it. And you know that if you watch the news, you know what I'm saying? 
So what do you imagine Noah's culture was like? We're going to read this, but what do you think it was like? Um, depravity that began with one simple act from Adam and Eve has now, across centuries, reached this place where people are without limit to what they're willing to do. What must it have been like to be Noah? To be the one, not perfect, but walking with God. You know, walking with God in a place where you are the only one doing it. Literally. Was God ignoring Noah? You know, was, was, does God have no limit to his patience? I mean, I know we do. Certainly we do. But does God have no limit whatsoever to his patience? Is it weakness if God's patience wears out? You feel like if, if you were to say, yeah, God's got a limit to his patience, sooner or later it wears out. Does that weakness on God's part? The Bible uses the term long-suffering which, of God, which means more that God is enduring or putting off justice than it does that he's you know, wearing out and exploding. All right, but, but yes, he's patient. So one other thing, we're going to dive in here, but one other thing to know up front. The flood is not God trying to sort out mankind's mess. All right, so if you think that, let's just get that out of your head. That's not the case, all right? The flood, this whole thing, is entirely about God's word. If you get that in your head, this will help you sort through the whole thing real easy, okay? Even though there's some wild stuff in here, and we're going to look at it in just a minute. But the flood is about, the flood is about God's word, all right? Not about fixing what man messed up. He made a promise in the garden. Remember, we said it. A seed that would save a descendant of woman, a child of woman that would save, that would provide salvation. And immediately that was challenged by the enemy. I said it before because Cain kills Abel. And the generations that follow get soaked in this spiritual battle. Um, Can God keep his word? Can God provide a seed can God bring, a, is there a woman that is going to provide a seed that is going to deliver like God said he would do? Can he destroy the seed of the enemy? Remember, there was both. Can he destroy the enemy? And at the time of Noah, think about it, man. God's word has to seem impossible now. Like, he's failing. The whole world now has reached this point where sin is on every, apart from one person, Noah, not his whole, I know his family gets on the ark, but it says Noah found favor, not his whole family. Noah found favor. God, God's grace brought the family aboard. So, no, this one guy, is that enough? You know? Is one person enough to provide salvation to ensure that the seed is gonna continue? Can God keep his word? Is, is he not a just God? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he want to do something about all this Sin and filth that's in the world. And there's a picture of Christ here. You have one man, Jesus, who is the seed of woman. We'll come to that because she's born of a virgin. She's, he's all God. He's all man. And he stood alone to face the wrath of God on man's sin. And all those who put their faith in him, who enter his ark, are his family, his children. And it is his body. That saves us from death and the wrath of God on the sins of mankind. And apart from him, listen, apart from him, all flesh dies at the hand of God's justice. I mean, I'm not trying to be heavy, but that's what his word says. Apart from him, it all dies. 
It all dies because he is just, along with the seed of the enemy. So if you've got a sheet, it's on there. Um, always put the ver- a, little pa- a little statement about you know what I want you to remember, if nothing else. And it should push us to share our faith without reservation. All right, It should push us to share our faith without reservation. We remember that God has no limit, or excuse me, God has a limit to his patience, but no limit to his grace. He has a limit to his patience, but no limit to his grace. And he will keep his word because he's powerfully able to do it. All right. If we keep that in our head, it should push us to share our faith. So go back to Genesis chapter six. Look at verse one. We're going to, we are going to cover a little bit up front, pretty heavy, and then we're going to kind of just survey over the back end. So we won't be here all day, I promise. Verse one. When man, mankind, began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives, uh, the actual word there is just women. Uh, wives is not in there. They took women, any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old... The men of renown. Now, what the world is going on there? Uh, if you've been in church very long, most people will jump right over that. You know what I mean? I'm not going to jump over it. So we're going to talk about it a little bit. But I will say that you will leave with questions. And that's okay. You know, questions are good. you got a lifetime to get to know God and his word. Plus, you can come ask me anytime you want. So I'll talk to you through Anything, but you'll always have questions. So, a couple things to point out here to begin with. The first word, when. So, what's being talked about here is a strategic point in time. When. This is a a specific moment. It's not just always, all the time. It is at a specific point. When. It says that men and women were reproducing. So, when they are reproducing, but it also singles out female children. So obviously there's a significance to women multiplying. So at this point when there are lots of multiplying females on the earth, all right, it mentions the sons of God here. That could be godly people or it could be uh, angels. Angels are most frequently tied to that language in the Old Testament. It doesn't make a lot of sense to say Godly people, because we know there weren't any godly people except for Noah in those days. So it's likely referring to angels. Hold on. And then it mentions these Nephilim characters. So the word means fallen ones. That's all it means. It's translated giants. Depending on what translation you're looking at, it might say giant in there. Uh, The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So a little around Jesus' time, a little after that, they translated the Bible into Greek. So the Greek version, they translate that word Titan. Know what a Titan is? Half uh, the child of a woman and a god, right? So that's who they understood these Nephilim to be. Now, they're not gods, okay? But that's what they understood them to be. Second Peter 2 and Jude, I'm not going to there. You can look it up in your own time. But they both talk about angels being chained in gloomy darkness from the days of Noah because they left their position of authority and engaged in acts, 
sexual in nature is what it says. What it says. Um, so what am I saying? What's going on here? Am I saying that demons or fallen angels impregnated women? Uh, how and why would that happen? Did they possess men or did they actually physically appear as a man and do this? And how does that even work? Am I, am I saying all of that? Uh, I'm reading what it says. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I, I can tell you right now that this is one of the most bizarre and twisted things and people love to go all over the place with it. But we don't have to go all over the place with it. We just read it. If you think the Bible's not full of wonder, you're crazy. He split a sea. Stood up on both sides. You know, he created everything out of nothing. Don't, don't be weirded out by things that are, that are awesome in his word. Okay? Let it, let it like excite you that there's more there. So how, why, what's going on here? Well, the, the how I can't answer. How, how this occurred, I can't answer. But I can suggest a reason why it would have happened. Um, to stop the seed. Or maybe to produce their own seed. You remember back in Genesis 3.15, the, the, the prophecy or the promise was her seed against the seed of the enemy? Maybe that's what they're doing because, again, notice that this occurred when daughters were being born everywhere. The opportunity for the seed is multiplying exponentially. That's what it's pointing out to you. Why else would they care that there were women being born all over the place? It's, it's being tied back to that original thing, and I think that's what's going on here. Either way, we know that there were giants, without a doubt. We know that because the Bible talks about them multiple times. Not 50-foot-tall monsters like you see uh, you know, in sci-fi movies. To a five-foot man, a nine-foot man is almost twice the size. That would make him a giant, right? Uh, it didn't have to be superhuman. In fact, they weren't superhuman. They were just very large. We have the same thing today. It's called gigantism. It is a defect in the DNA of someone. It's a genetic disease. Typically, they hurt, ache, and die young. It doesn't make them supermen, but it does make them unusually tall. And these same dudes, Nephilim, were there centuries later when the people of Israel scout out the promised land. I can show you a handful, but I'll only show you a couple. In Numbers chapter 13, this is centuries later, in verse 32, it says, these scouts, these spies who went and looked at the promised land, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Look at this. And all the people, people, that we saw in it are of what? Great height. And they, and there we saw the Nephilim, same dudes, the sons of Enoch who come from the Nephilim, so it's descendants. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. So he's telling you that these descendants of the Nephilim, the same guys, were there. Uh, they, they weren't uh, Hercules or nothing. They were just giants. And he describes them as being of great height. So obviously you know of Goliath. That's the one that should come right to your brain, David and Goliath, right? Well, David and his men fought other giants too from the same place. i give you this really quick. Second Samuel 21, verse 15. This is... Well, after the promised land, this is centuries after what I had just read. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel and David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines and David grew weary and Ishbi Bonav of one of the what? 
descendants of the giants. It's not up there. You, this one you'd have to look up. So one of the descendants of the giants, verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines. Then Sibekai the Hushite struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Verse 20, there was again war with Goth, where there was a man of great statue who had six fingers and six hands and six fingers on one hand and six toes. It says, uh, and he was a descendant of the giant. Verse 22. There, these four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and his servants. So, point being, whatever it was on the other side of the ark, it came through. So, probably a defect in DNA or something like that. Maybe it was in one of his children. I don't know, but it came through. So, all I'm trying to say by all that is we, they're not rock monsters if you've seen the movie. You know what I'm saying? They're not aliens from outer space. They were people, okay? Were, were they the product of angels and women? That one I don't know. There's evidence there to support that could be what's happening. Uh, there's a good argument for it, but it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't even matter, okay? It doesn't even matter. Verse, the point being that the world is incredibly wicked and the issue is the seed of woman. That's the issue. All right? So verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness or the evil of man was great in the earth. Now, that doesn't mean every continent because there's not that many people on the earth yet. All right. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You want a definition of what the word depravity means? There you go. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And by the way, quick note, this doesn't reset. The flood doesn't reset and make everybody good again. Because in Genesis 8, verse 21, after the flood, the Lord it says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Look, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike down every living creature as I've done. So he's saying even after the flood, they're still evil from their youth and their heart. Point is, in all cases, before the flood, after the flood, from Adam all the way to us, Salvation is by grace alone because all hearts are evil. Evil just means self-seeking. Like we're not looking to honor God with our life apart from Christ. We're not looking to honor God with our life. Um, Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is cool now before you get all twisted up. What does that tell you about God? Yeah, he's got feelings, man. That's what's up. He's got feelings. Don't get twisted about like he makes mistakes. That's not what he's saying. He's telling you he's got feelings. This is his story, remember, not ours. Does God grieve? Yeah, man, does God regret? It says it there. There's other verses that tell us he doesn't regret like men do. He's not a man that he should regret. He doesn't regret the same way. The point is that God's free to make decisions and to see them through. And if he changes his mind or changes his direction, it's in his design to do so. That's what it means. He can't be coerced. He can't be begged down. You know, he, he can't be bribed. That's the idea. And the regret here expresses the depth of his feeling, not failure. It's telling you the the. the, the depth of his feeling it's giving you something of how god feels it's not addressing failure or or, and grieving is not an admission of failure either grieving is not any kind of failure grieving is the same thing it's an admission of feelings like god feels 
to grieve or feel displeased does not mean you failed. Both Isaiah and Paul talk about the Holy Spirit being grieved. You know, outright says it. So what this tells you about God is God grieves over man's love for sin instead of him. He grieves over his judgment that must be against him, against them for their sin because he is a just God and he said so. The day you eat of it, you will what? Die. He said so. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens. For I'm sorry that I've made them. It's the same word. It's that regret. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's such an awesome statement. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say, but Noah was perfect. It doesn't say, but Noah earned the right to... It don't say any of that. It doesn't say, but Noah was good enough. It says that God had favor on Noah. God had put his eyes on Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Doesn't mean perfect. It means they couldn't find, nobody could really find fault. Paul says in the New Testament, be above reproach. It's the same exact thing. It means that nobody's going to show up and say, yeah, well, you know what he did. Or, hey, y'all all know what kind of guy he is. Nobody could do that. Doesn't mean he was sinless. Just that he didn't bear fault in front of people. So Noah walked with God. Awesome statement. I think that's literal. I think God in some way was present with Noah. I think they walked and talked. I don't know what that looked like, but that's what I think. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. So God is the judge, and you know people say all the time, I love it in the prisons, people always say, only God can judge me. Yeah, that's awesome. Be careful. Like, that's the last person I want to judge me. You know what I'm saying? Dave, you judge me. Don't let God judge me, because God sees everything. You know what I'm saying? That is the most foolish statement ever. Yes, you're right. Only God can judge you, and he will. So where we stand? You know, that's what he's saying. In his sight, the world is corrupt. The earth was Filled with violence. Got this walking dead thing going on. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All. And God said to Noah. I think they're walking and they're talking. And God says, I'll tell you what. Noah, I've determined to make an end to all flesh. I'm going to do it. It's done. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. So he had to build it. He had to build it. Go make yourself an arm. This is not an example of salvation by works, though. People would argue that. It's obedience and faith here. He's trusting that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he'll do. So if God's saying he's going to do it, and God tells me to do this, I trust and believe that God's going to do it, so I'm going to do this. Noah's faith is verified by obedience. It's not the other way around. I'm not going to go all into the ark. Uh, You can read into that in your own time. I'll give you a couple of quick Simple things, facts about the ark, uh, based on the measurements given, that there would have been about 1.4 million square feet inside of it. That's a lot of space. That's like 520 plus railroad cars. Uh, two of each kind were brought in, male and female. Look, they don't. We talked about it before. They don't have to be every. It says according to their kind. It doesn't have to be every single animal. You don't have to have a chihuahua and a German shepherd. You just have to have canine, a male and female canine. That includes coyotes, wolves, the whole whole entire thing. So larger species are probably brought in as babies because they're going to be reproducing anyway when they get out. 
So they would have come in small, not huge. All right? Even though the murals on the kids' walls look like they do. You didn't necessarily have a giant giraffe and a giant, you know, elephant and whatever else. A hundred years is about probably what it took, maybe 120 for him to build it. Because the countdown, it says in verse 3, was 120 years. God says, hey, you got 120 years and then this flood is coming. So now that sounds crazy to think, oh, well, how did he do this on his own with his family in 120 years? But, man, we go look at the pyramids and we stand in awe of that. You know, there's plenty of structures in this world that we stand in awe of. It is no big deal to think in 120 years that he couldn't have done this. Um, Answersingenesis.com. You can go there and see all you want to see about the ark. There's tons of stuff there. Answersingenesis.com. But our focus is the story of God here again, not the ark. So look at verse 17, chapter 6. For I, for behold, I will bring, I will bring, I God will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. I love that God says this beforehand. Uh, it's grace right here. He doesn't say, if you do this, it's unconditional. I'm going to. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, uh, notice this is given before. De- deliverance comes before destruction here. Deliverance comes before destruction. That's how grace works, man. He finds favor in us. No good reason. I can promise you no good reason for him to find favor in me. I can straight promise you that. You know my path. I promise you. But he finds, he comes and he has, he has favor. He finds grace on you. He promises a covenant with you. Beforehand, he promises to deliver us. Beforehand. And our obedience to him is evidence to others and ourselves that we have faith in what his word is saying. That, that's how that works. The first mention here of covenant in the Bible and the fact that God would agree with any man is crazy, man. What does God owe Noah? You don't owe him anything. He can make more men. Except that he promised a seed, right? Except that he promised a seed. It just shows how much he loves us and he's determined to deliver us. But don't ever forget, he's not delivering. Look, don't forget this. He's not delivering Noah or us from Satan. He's delivering us from his own wrath on sin. He's the one bringing the flood. He's delivering Noah from his own wrath on sin. Same thing for us. This is not up there, but Genesis chapter 7. We'll speed through the end here really quick. Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon The earth, 40 days and 40 nights. The water came from everywhere. It wasn't just rain. It came from above. It came from below. It came from all directions. You want to get a feel of this? I don't have time to show it to you, but you can Google it. Go Google the 2011 Japanese tsunami. There's videos of it. Uh, I used to, I've taught the flood before and I used to show it because it's mind blowing in, in a matter of minutes. I mean, you could sit there for about six to eight minutes and watch the water erase a whole city. It is Terrifying and mind-blowing. So all of the water comes from above. All the water comes from below. Was it a flood in Noah's day? Was it local? Was it global? That's a big argument people like to get into. 
If you trust what God's word says, he says plain and simple in verse 17 of chapter 7 that the flood was for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So a cubit's about three, you know, about the length of your finger to your elbow. So however many, that was times 15. So it was above all the highest mountains. So if you believe in what the Bible says, it's global. Um, but verse 18 there is a key. It says, the waters prevailed and it increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. God does both deliver and destroy. You see that? The same waters that killed also carried them to safety. That's what he's saying. It's a picture of Jesus' cross. The same wood and nails that killed him carried salvation to us. Same thing. 150 days pass, dark lands, and then another 50 days or so, they sit there as the water continues to go down. And then in verse 15, it says of chapter 8, I know I'm skipping quick, just make notes. Chapter 8, verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So send them out to repopulate the earth. But I'm reading this because I love this, what it says. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out. I like this. By families from the ark. Families. One of the first times, maybe the first time you see that word specifically plugged in your Bible. And he's addressing the people and the animals. That they likely had had children on board the ark or whatever else. Either way, they're going out as families. There's a picture of what is described as a family. Even among the animal kingdom. But these... uh, Things have changed now. You can read it in your own time. The animals now are going to fear man. Uh, man is now going to be permitted by God to eat the animals. It's in there. But the blood is sacred. He's identifying something now. The blood is sacred. Can't eat the blood. Uh, because the blood carry tells you why. Because the blood carries life. And mankind is responsible to God for blood now as well. For the blood of man. Verse 6 of chapter 9 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So it's still the image of God, even after the flood. But also of Adam, a fallen man. Verse 7, and you, be fruitful and multiply, increase and fill the earth. So, same thing he told Adam, he tells back to Noah again. So God makes this covenant with Noah, never again to flood the earth. and Or wipe it clean of life that way. The rainbow is a sign of that. Rainbow may have been there. Some argue the rainbow had already been there. He's just assigning purpose to it. So now when you see it, you're going to know this is the sign of our of our agreement. Either way, whether it's the first time or not, the purpose of the rainbow here is to remind God and man that he will not destroy the earth in that way again. Verse 18, the son of chapter 9, almost done here. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. Watch this. And from these people, uh, or from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And after that, Noah died. It says Noah lived 950 years, long time, and he died. Either way, Noah dies too. Noah didn't get out. Noah didn't die in the flood, but Noah still dies because Noah still got sin. Noah's still a fallen person, a sinful person. So, uh, but it's interesting to note that whether or not, however you feel about it, whether God, we talked about it before, did God create Adam and Eve or did God create Adam and Eve in this culture of men, mankind out there somewhere? Uh, we definitely argue that that's not true. God created Adam and Eve in here. Without a doubt, God creates either way. All of mankind is a descendant of one of these. So if you trace your heritage back far enough, you're going to go all the way back to one of these guys and then to Noah. You know, and back through. So the seed continues. So the real important thing here, we're, we're clo- close up here. The real important thing here is not to look around us. And look at the world and watch the news and try to determine how much of our world is like Noah's and how soon the end is coming. Because honestly, we already know it, don't we? You already know. And things really grow crazier every day. You don't need to watch the thing. The important thing here is to recognize that not only is Jesus pictured in Noah, but Jesus is pictured in the ark. Like this is the story of him. Back then, the invitation was to seven people plus Noah. Now the invitation is to all. Now the invitation is to all. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, the invitation is to all now. To come be part of the family, to be carried through death by his body and his blood. The cross is that ark. And it will be Christ who delivers us from the wrath of God. And the ultimate judgment that he puts on sin by his cross and his resurrection. He does deliver and he does destroy. They're both in there. So what do we do with this? Well, as believers, first of all, we should be proclaiming grace because the invitation is open to all. We should be proclaiming grace, man. Telling people about God's love and God's grace. We should be calling people to come into the ark, man. Come into the family. Be part of Christ's family. And we should trust his word. Listen, we should trust his word. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Both of those things. Both of those things. All right? He will keep his word. So, the question ultimately that we all have to face, though, the question we all have to face is whether or not we believe God's word is true. Whether or not we believe God is just. Is he really going to do what he says he's going to do? Uh, if he is, where does that leave you? Where does that put you if he is? Are you looking for the ark? Or are you one of those people that are scoffing at the man who's building it? Are you looking at the miracle of the cross? Or are you seeing the fool that got nailed to it? You know, the truth is that God does both. The gospel is salvation should you choose to enter the heart. So how do you do it? Well, I talk about it every week. It's, it's, it's easy, really. Be the biggest step you ever made, but it's easy. It's access by faith. Really simple. Can you admit who you are? Hey, look, you don't have to tell me. I know I'm messed up. 
Can you admit who you are? I know I've failed. Can you tell? Can you admit that? Can you believe that he is who he says he is? Man, God, I know you are who you say you are. I know you are. I don't have all the answers, but I, but I know that you are a loving God. I know that you're a just God. I know these things to be true, even if I can't explain how. I believe that to be true. Can you trust in what he's done? Can, can you trust that you'll never be good enough, but that cross is more than enough? Can you trust that salvation is by grace alone? Can you trust that his defeating death is your only hope? If you can, you just tell him. Don't tell me, tell him. You know, in in your own words, in your own way. And then come tell me. Because we want to pray with you and love you too. Can you stand up with me really quick? And and we're going to take a moment and pray. And then we're going to sing one more song and we'll get out of here. But I I want you guys to take a few minutes and process. I know it's a lot to think about today. But, um, man, it's good. God's word is his word, not mine. And so we're trusting what he says to be true. And, um, Lord, let me, uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege of opening it. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into it. And I know there's things in here that are straightforward. And there's other things in here that are wild and seem like a fantasy movie on some level. Um, Lord, but you're bigger than all of that. You created all things. Uh, you are an awesome, amazing God. And some things that we like to believe in fantasy are based in truth. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you do both destroy and deliver. I I, I hesitate to say thank you for destruction, but I I say thank you for justice. Um, Thank you for the fact that I know I can trust you to do the right thing and to be just. And God, thank you for grace. Man, thank you for grace, Lord, because I know that I deserve the justice. I certainly, certainly do not deserve to be In any art, I have not done anything in my life worthy of that. In fact, I've done just the opposite. And yet, because you found favor in me, you decided to love me. You set your heart on me, Lord. You called me to your name. God, I'll spend the rest of my life serving you, Lord. And I'll still fail, but I'll continue to push towards that. And I pray today for anybody, Lord, here that doesn't know you. Open their eyes. Call their name, Lord. Let them hear you. Let them know that you are who you say you are. Burden their heart to give their life to you, to find salvation. Lord, you are an amazing, incredible God. We glorify you today in Christ's name. Amen.